Welcome back to the Be That Life podcast in partnership with a very exciting new sponsor, the Megaverse. But more about that a little bit later on. I hope that you truly enjoy this episode. Hi, Dr. Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Mary. How are you? Thanks for having me on the show. I'm I'm super excited to be here. I'm doing amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've really been looking forward to this chat with you and this conversation only because I'm super, super passionate about sleep myself. But aside (laughs) from that... It, I know, like, my belief is that it is really the foundation of optimal health. I couldn't agree with you more. I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Now, um, as one of the few psychologists to pass the medicine specialty board, without yep. really attending medical school, what really inspired you to uh, specialize in sleep and really dedicate your career to helping people improve their sleep? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, So originally I thought I wanted to be a sports psychologist. So I wanted to work with athletes and show them how to throw faster and the mental game of sports and all of these different things. And I went to do a residency and they said, before you start the sports side of things, we want you to go into the sleep lab and we want you to do the sleep laboratory for the first three to six months. Then the last three to six months, you can do the sports side of things. And I'm like, oh, Really? That doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but I was like, well, like how tough could this this be, right? I mean, it's sleep, like everybody does it. And honestly, Mary, by the third day, I absolutely fell in love with clinical sleep medicine. I help people like this. It's unbelievable. When you change someone's sleep, you change their life. It affects every organ system, every disease state, literally everything you do, you do better with a good night's sleep. So for me, it was just about an optimal way to help people. I get to help a lot of people um, with things like your podcast, where we get to reach great audiences, my books, all of the things, the websites, all of those things turn out to be incredibly important because so few people really know and understand the way you do the importance of a good night's sleep. Right. As one of the, let's, let's just give an example, okay? So you are an owner of our Fortune 500 company. Now, I believe like this question is really important because there's just so many people in that level who I work with personally who just don't really understand the fundamental importance of sleep. So going going back to it, you are an owner of a Fortune 500 company. Like how would you address the importance of sleep and what are like the strategies you would implement to ensure that employees are really performing at the top of the game. Absolutely. So when I, when I work with founders of companies in the fortune 500 realm, there's actually several things that we seem to find in that works across the board for all of them. Um, The first thing we always want to do is we want to rule out any official sleep disorders. The biggest one being sleep apnea. So for many of these people, we do a very simple at home sleep test where um, they get a device, there's a little cannula that goes on their nose, something on their finger, sometimes it's just a ring, and we be able, we can monitor their sleep for a 24-hour period and see if they've got something called sleep apnea. Now, sleep apnea is, a, is an important medical situation where people stop breathing when they sleep. Generally speaking, we like our patients to breathe, right? That's, that's a good thing. <laughs> yes. And when they stop breathing, their heart rate slows down, then it speeds up, it can cause all kinds of pretty significant cardiovascular problems. Um, Also, when you don't get good quality sleep, and this is the second part that I work with, everybody seems to wonder about this, is people are always saying, oh, I need to get my seven hours, my eight hours, my nine hours. It's not as much a quantity game as it is a quality game. 
So what I do with my Fortune 100 and Fortune 500 clients is we test them to see if they have a sleep disorder. Let's say that they don't have a sleep disorder like apnea, narcolepsy, restless legs, but they do have something that I call disordered sleep, right? So that's the quality of their sleep has gotten suspect. And there's a whole host of reasons why this can be. For some of them, it's their jet setting all over the world, right? They're in airplanes, different time zones, so that can be an issue. Another thing is caffeine. Caffeine can turn out to be one of those things that people don't realize. Caffeine is a half-life of between six and eight hours. And so what ends up happening is they have a cup of coffee at, let's say, four o'clock in the afternoon. They're trying to go to bed at 10, 12 o'clock at night. They can't fall asleep because there's too much caffeine on board. But the biggest issue that I find with many of these people is anxiety and depression, right? And so it prevents them from either falling asleep or they're able to fall asleep, but they wake up in the middle of the night and cannot return to sleep because their brain switches on in the middle of the night and boy, they can't turn that sucker off. And so my real role is I teach people not only how to fall asleep without medications, but I also teach them what to do if they wake up in the middle of the night and they need to return back to sleep. Because that, believe it or not, is the number one question that I get asked other than what bed should so I what is that? So what is it? So what is it that you actually do to help them like fall sure. back to sleep after? Because, you know, I, I have days where I like toss and turn and there's days where I sleep like a baby. But I don't have sleep problems, but there's just days that I just can't sleep. So first of all, the first thing that I do is I explain the biology of it all. So if you give me a few minutes here, I'm going to explain to everybody that's listening sort of what is the biology and how does that anatomy work. So in order to fall asleep, your core body temperature rises, rises, rises till about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and then it hits a peak. Then after that peak, it begins to fall. When it begins to fall, that's a signal to your brain to release melatonin. So for people who don't know, melatonin is kind of that key that starts the engine for sleep. It's not everything, but if you don't have melatonin, you ain't falling asleep, right? Then your core body temperature continues to drop, drop, drop. And then it's got to go back up. Otherwise, you go hypothermic. That's not good either. So when your core body temperature starts to rise again, you automatically go into a lighter stage of sleep. In that lighter stage of sleep, which usually happens somewhere between 1 and 3 o'clock in the morning, guess what? Lots of people wake up. In fact, almost everyone wakes up. The difference is some people can fall back to sleep. Other people stay up. They go to the bathroom. Their mind starts churning and churning, and then they're in real trouble. So let's talk about the people who wake up in the middle of the night and have a difficult time falling back to sleep. So once I explain the biology and I let them know, hey, by the way, It's not necessarily something you did. This is what your body naturally does. We talk about three different factors. The first one is caffeine. I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but we know that caffeine can really mess up that whole process. So getting people to stop caffeine earlier and earlier in the, uh, in the evening is going to be important. For most people, I say that 2 p.m. is the correct cutoff time. But if you can cut it off by noon or you can cut it off by 10 a.m. in the morning, you're going to be much better off falling asleep at night. The second one has to do with alcohol. Now, while I know not everybody drinks alcohol, for those people that do drink alcohol, the sugar and the alcohol itself stops your circadian clock. The sugar slows down your melatonin production and the alcohol stops your circadian clock. It's almost like anesthetizing yourself. So if you went in for a surgery and they put a needle in your arm to put you to sleep, that's not real sleep. That's exactly what alcohol does. And when you pull that needle out, you wake up. 
Same thing with alcohol. When your metabolism burns through that alcohol, you wake up and you're like, what's going on? You're dehydrated, probably have a bit of a headache, and you have to go to the bathroom. Now, the third thing is really more surrounding anxiety. And there's a few things that I talk about with people with this as well. So the first thing that most people do, and this is really the worst thing that they could do, is they look at the clock, okay? And then they instantly do the mental math and they say, oh crap, it's 2.30 in the morning, I've gotta be up at six, sleep, sleep, sleep. And they try to force themselves to sleep, right? now. Going to be honest with you, in the history of time, nobody has ever thought their way back to sleep because it does the opposite, right? When you're thinking, you're causing all this cognition in your brain to work harder when, in fact, what we want your brain to do is slow down. So number one rule is don't look at the clock. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, Mary. Almost everybody looks at the clock. clock, okay? Yeah, I do that too. I do that too, actually. I know, right? (laughs) See, I told you. Almost everybody does. Now, here's the thing, though. It's okay if you looked at the clock. The second thing a lot of people do is they go to the bathroom. Now, I want to be clear about something. You got to go to the bathroom. Go to the bathroom. But for most people, what they do say to themselves is they say, hmm, I don't know if I have to go, but I might as well. I'm up. This is where the problem comes in. Most people don't know it but you need a heart rate of 60 or below in order to get into a state of unconsciousness. When you go from a lying position to a seated position to a standing position and you walk across the room, guess what? Your heart rate goes past 60. So then when you go into the bathroom and if God forbid you flip on the light, you just told your brain it's morning, it stops producing melatonin, now you got two problems on your hands. So first of all, if you're gonna have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, which some people do, Put some strategically placed night lights along the way so you can get there, do what you need to do without having to turn on a light and get back into bed. But do me a favor. If you don't really have to go to the bathroom, don't go to the bathroom. Do you have a recommended cutoff time when it comes to the, the amount of water they need to drink and what time did you stop drinking before bed? Great question. I love your question. So what I tell people is you stop alcohol three hours before bed. You stop food two hours before bed and you stop water one hour before bed and make sure that you go to the bathroom before you go to sleep. Okay. okay. So that's the time that if you don't know if you have to pee or not, go ahead and try to go to the bathroom just before bed. Now, let's say you don't have to pee. Um, you haven't looked at the clock or maybe you did. What do you do next in order to get your heart rate below 60? Cause that's really kind of the magic number here. So my favorite technique is a breathing technique called four, seven, eight breathing. So this was developed by Dr. Andrew Weil. And believe it or not, it was developed for the Navy SEALs. And so if you're a long range sniper, you want to take your shot in between heartbeats. And by doing four, seven, eight breathing, it slows your heart rate down to, you guessed it, below 60, which is exactly where we want to go to be able to get people into sleep. And so this is how the technique works, is you slowly breathe in for a count of four, you hold for a count of seven, then you breathe out for a count of eight. You do this about five to seven cycles. And again, it's slow. You're not, you're not doing big hops and big puffs. Very slowly in, hold, and then slowly breathe out. The reason you breathe out longer than you hold or breathe in is you want to dump any excess carbon dioxide out of your lungs And then when you breathe in this fresh new air, your heart doesn't have to beat as fast because you've got more oxygen and it lowers your heart rate. 
five to seven cycles and you really have a tendency to kind of get there. So what I have a lot of people do, and by the way, if you can't do four, seven, eight, you can do four, five, six, you can do four, um, six, seven, if that's what you wanted to do, find what works for you. I even have some people do a t- another breathing technique called box breathing. This is where you breathe in for a count of four, you hold for a count of four, you breathe out for a count of four, you hold for a count of four. And it kind of makes a box, if you will, in terms of the numbers of what's going on. That turns out to be helpful as well, again, to lower that heart rate. Now, let's say you've woken up, you didn't look at the clock, or maybe you did, you don't have to pee, you are doing the four, seven, eight breathing, and it's still not happening for you. What do I do, Dr. Bruce? So there's now data on something called non-sleep deep rest. So this is lying in a quiescent state, so in the dark, eyes closed, just relaxing. It turns out that it's kind of rejuvenative. Now, got to be honest with you, it's not as good as sleep. But an hour of that is worth about 20 minutes or so of sleep. So what you want to do is be able to tell yourself, look, it's okay if I don't fall right back to sleep. Even if I'm lying here and relaxing, my body is still getting some level of rejuvenation. This allows the anxiety to drop and the natural sleep process to begin to take over as well. When we look at sleep, there's really two main categories that I like to talk with people about. There's discipline, which is all the techniques that we're talking about. Go to bed at the same time. And if you can't do that, wake up at the same time, which is probably the most important tip I can give anybody. So do you, um, do you believe in alarm clocks? So I haven't used an alarm clock myself in a very long time. But for people who have to get up at a particular time, like for a flight or for work or something like that, I don't think alarm clocks are bad. But the okay. snooze button is just about the worst invention in all of them. Yeah, stuff, that's true. Okay? I agree. Yeah, it's awful because the average snooze is between seven and nine minutes long. And your body can't get back into a deep sleep. And so if you just keep hitting the snooze, all you're doing is giving yourself light and crappy sleep, which is never a good idea. Getting back to the other idea here of discipline, there's a second category, and that's called acceptance. Okay? And acceptance is it's okay. Right? A lot of people don't think about it, but this probably isn't the first time you've had a rough night of sleep. And it's probably not going to be the last time that you have a rough night of sleep. I'll be honest with you. There are times when me, and I'm the sleep doctor, don't get a good night's rest. Why is that? Well, there might be something stressful going on with my daughter or my son or my wife. There might be something going on at work. There might be something going on with a friend or a loved one. Those things are supposed to keep us awake. Sometimes we just have to trust our bodies and say, you know what? For whatever reason, my body wants me to be awake right now. So I'm going to lie here and relax and just allow myself to be. Again, remember, you're getting some level of rejuvenation. This helps lower the heart rate, lower the anxiety, and allows the natural sleep process to take over. That is such great advice, and it's going to be so beneficial to a lot of our listeners for sure. Now, we have spoken before, you and I, about like this yes. hustle culture and larger oh, yeah. cities being like sleep-deprived and being not being able to sleep at all in general uh, because it's just too overworked, too much stress, overthinking, responsibilities. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so having this kind of tip 
for the listeners is actually really good because a lot of them are either really sleeping really late or having a lot of broken sleep. Now, from yes. the perspective of a doctor who really specializes in, in, in sleep medicine, what do you think is your unique perspective that you bring to sleep medicine? So for me, I talk to people about something called their chronotypes. So chronotypes, and people may not have heard of this term, but they probably heard of the concept before. If you've ever been called an early bird or a night owl, those are chronotypes. So I was very fortunate. I wrote a book uh, not that long ago called The Power of When, W-H-E-N, and it tells people when they should go to bed, when they should wake up based on their chronotype. Now, people always say, oh, well, I, I, want, to be a, I want to be an early bird. I want to wake up at 5.30 in the morning and meet the day. Here's the, here's the good news and the bad news. It's genetic, okay? You don't get to choose. However, most people go through most chronotypes throughout their lifetime. So think about it. If you've ever been with a little itty-bitty baby, they go to bed early and they wake up early. So they're what I call an early bird or a lion. Um, people who are in the middle, most kids who are in their toddler to kind of middle school age range, they go to bed around 7.30, they wake up around 7.30. That's kind of in the middle. They're what I call a bear. Then they hit adolescence, and what do most teenagers want to do? Stay up late and sleep late. So they're what I call a wolf. Once you get into the age 18 to 20, your chronotype sets for about 30 to 40 years then it starts to reverse. So if you've ever asked your grandma or your grandpa to go out to dinner, what did they say? I'll meet you at five o'clock for dinner. Who eats dinner at five o'clock? Grandma and grandpa do because their melatonin curve is a little bit earlier because it's all based on when does your melatonin naturally want to break off. So a lot of people, when they're 18 to 20, they are becoming early birds. Some of them are in the middle, again, what I call a bear. Some of them are night owls like I used to be. Um, but now I'm 55, and guess what? I'm starting to go to bed a lot earlier. I used to stay up until 1 o'clock in the morning and love to sleep until 8 or 9. I thought it was fantastic. Now I can barely sleep past 6.30 in the morning, no matter how hard I try. So these things will happen to us all. But once again, it's genetic, and people need to know and understand that. And so I created a quiz, which you know about online, called chronoquiz.com. And so if people go and take the quiz, in about 30 questions – we figure out for you very quickly which one of these chronotypes you are and give you some good information about when should you drink coffee, when should you wake up, when should you exercise. Because if you know the perfect time of day when your hormones will naturally be at that state, then you do whatever it is that you want to do that much better. How important is understanding chronotypes for an organization? Great question. So my dear friend Dave Asprey from Bulletproof, once I um, did this, he loved the idea so much, he chronotyped the entire company. He had everybody in there um, actually take the chrono quiz, and then he scheduled meetings based on people's chronotype. Yeah. So it turned out that the most creative people, they were night owls. And so having a, more, a meeting at 7 a.m. on a Monday was never a good idea because either they didn't show up or they certainly didn't participate because they were too damn tired. But having it on Thursday at 4 o'clock in the afternoon turned out to be a great idea for them. Their operators, their people who had a tendency to um, you know, run the business itself, those were the people that you could have a Monday morning meeting at 7.30 in the morning, and they were right there and ready to go. And so what you do is you can find, based on their job, 
what types of chronotypes they are, and then schedule the meetings that need to occur so that people are focused, have the attention, and get the work done. I would tell some of my friends and even my clients who run massive organizations that it's really great to put the sleep chronotype test even just in recruitment phase. So before yes. you even hire someone to have the chronotype Correct. test done, because you can tell so much about a person based on that. Absolutely. I think that's the smartest idea. I haven't heard somebody do that, but I think you're absolutely right, Mary. I think that's a great idea. What are some of the common misconceptions about sleep that you like frequently encounter? Are there some? So one of the biggest things that people always think is that you can make up for sleep on the weekends. I got to be honest with you, Mayor. There's no universe where that's really true. And let me explain to you why that occurs. So when people, wait, let's say it every day, just as an example, people are waking up at 6 a.m. When you wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning, sunlight hits your eye and turns off the melatonin faucet in your head. Okay. Then roughly 14 hours later, there's a timer that gets set and then melatonin production begins again. So if you're waking up at 6 at roughly 8 o'clock, that's when melatonin starts. It takes about an hour and a half for it to become active. So around 9, 30, 10 o'clock, people are getting sleepy, and then they fall asleep. Now, if you do that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, but on Saturday, you don't wake up at 6. You wake up at 8, two hours later. Guess what happens? Your brain can't tell time, but it's a timer. So if you wake up at 8, 14 hours later is 10 o'clock, not eight o'clock and your melatonin takes another hour and a half to kick in, you won't fall asleep before midnight. If you do that for Saturday and for Sunday, guess what happens on Monday? It's your brain is stuck in rhythm. weekend time. And so you never really do that. And so, so many people tell me all the time, oh, I'm only going to get six hours during the weekend. I'm going to catch up on the weekends. You can do that a little bit when you're young. Um, but, you know, once you kind of hit that, the 30, 35 age range, it's very hard to do. And let me tell you something. Once you have kids and kids are exhausting and wake you up and all of that other nonsense, it's, it's never going to work out. So one of the big myths out there is that you can make up for sleep on the weekends. The second big myth that a lot of people ask me about is, is eight hours necessary? We mentioned it a little bit at the beginning, but let's dive in just a little bit deeper now. Eight hours is a myth. Let me repeat myself. Eight hours is a myth. Okay. The amount of sleep that you require is actually based on your genetics. So one of the things that I do when I work with my clients is we actually do genetic testing. So we take a DNA swab of their cheek or their saliva, and I can actually tell you based on your genetics, how much sleep you personally need. I got some clients who only need six hours of sleep. I got some clients who need nine hours of sleep. So it's going to vary from person to person and it's going to change throughout your lifetime. And if you're female, it may change based on your menstrual cycle. So you really have to think through all of these different ideas to get an accurate depiction of how long you need to sleep. And remember, it's not always about length. It's really about quality. That's where the alcohol, the caffeine and the timing really come into play. Okay. Um, so you recommend anywhere between six to eight is the healthy sleeping patterns. So it isn't always yeah. eight hours. It's between six to eight. Yeah. Between six and eight. Some people would say between seven and nine. What I tell people all the time is this. If you wake up and you feel alert and ready to meet the day, you figured it out. 
if you wake up and you need to hit the snooze button six times, you're either not sleeping at the right time for you or you're not getting enough quality sleep. And that could be due to a sleep disorder like sleep apnea, which we discussed before, or an environmental issue. Okay, so you mentioned on the first point is that it's a myth when people can catch up sleep on the weekend. But how about the concept of sleep death? Mm -hmm. So sleep debt is kind of this interesting idea where people say you take out eight hours in the beginning of the night and then you pay it back. And when you don't pay it back by the end of the week, you might have missed an, an entire like night of sleep. Got to be honest with you. Every couple of years, people say it's true. And every couple of years, people say it's false. We really don't have a great idea about this. But what we do know is that consistency matters. Right. So if you're only going to get six or six and a half hours of sleep, get the same six and a half hours of sleep every single night. Okay. Um, sleep debt, we think also has a lot to do with age. So as an example, when you're older, like me, age 55 and above, then it's going to matter if you don't get enough sleep during the week. But if they're young like you, then guess what? It might not have as big an effect, at least not immediately. But over time, We do know that if you pile up and just don't get enough sleep for you, it can have pretty disastrous effects. And that's where we have to think about this idea of sleep deprivation. So sleep deprivation is a different definition for every human on earth. So when I get somebody who comes to me and they say, Michael, I'm getting five and a half hours of sleep. Is that bad? My answer is, I don't know. Let's let's talk about that for a little bit. I mean, it's hard to believe that five and a half hours is going to be good for anyone, but Let's see how you're functioning. Let's see what's happening. Are you tired? Are you using caffeine? Are you taking naps? Things of that nature. And that brings up naps, which I think is an important thing to talk about here as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I have a, I'm going to ask you that question a bit later because I have a, I have okay. a, I have an interesting one about that, which I kind okay. of like discovered recently too, which I thought like that's such an interesting topic to speak with Michael about. Yeah. So, uh, going back to what you were saying about, uh, sleep deprivation now, Let's just give an example for a lot of people who don't get any sleep at all. Now, being awake for 24 hours. Now, there are people out there who are awake for 24 hours straight. People suffer from insomnia, kids that constantly game, you know, um, constantly overworked, overstressed. Now, as you would know, this leads to cognitive uh, performance impairment, equivalent to having a blood alcohol concentration of 0.10%. Now that is higher that is than correct. than the than the legal limit for driving, right? In many That's many correct. countries. So additionally, also like studies have shown that sleep deprivation, like amongst healthcare professionals, really increases the risk of medical errors. Yes. Absolutely. So like, how can healthcare systems really like you know help these professionals navigate their way to better sleep because they're constantly on the go; they're not getting that sleep. So here's part of the problem is when we look at things like medical errors and we look at cognitive decline and things like that, it's very individualized. There's some surgeons who sleep five hours a night and they do just fine or might be up for 24, 36 hours in the emergency room and doing their thing. Because remember, adrenaline and cortisol are pumping through their systems. Over the course of time, they will make a mistake. And the mistake could be fatal to the patient Um, could damage their career, all of these types of things. And so when I'm advising hospitals and hospital staff, I'm always telling people to monitor their own sleep deprivation. You know, if you sit quietly in a room that's dimly lit, how long does it take you before you fall asleep? 
if you fall asleep within five or seven minutes, you are too sleepy to be doing what you're doing and you probably need to take a nap or find a place that's safe for you to go and get, get a little bit of extra rest. Um, now, for people who are forced for whatever reason, let's say you're in the military and you're forced to stay up for these extended periods of time, believe it or not, using a little bit of caffeine is not the end of the world. Um, lots of people will do that, but I'm going to warn you, it's going to catch up with you over time. And so there's only so long that the body can go without sleep before you begin hallucinating, before you begin having severe cognitive decline, lower reaction time. And so you have to be quite careful with that. So I got a quick question for you. Do you know anything about the Megaverse? Well, I am in partnership and in collaboration with the team at the Megaverse who are creating for me a unique wellness world and I'm so excited to share with you all. I firmly believe that Web 2 is a thing of the past and Web 3 is the future. To know more about them, check out megaverse.xyz. So how, how are healthcare systems able to support their, their um, employees this week? For those that just are not well, really getting that amount of sleep because of, you know, the, the nature of their job. So one of the things we talk about with them all the time is giving people breaks on a fairly regular basis. Taking small naps can be actually quite helpful. There's data to show that a 7 to 15 minute nap taken every 2 to 3 hours for some of those super long shifts can actually keep people pretty alert and going. Closer to 20 minutes is what I would recommend personally. You don't want to nap longer than about 20, 25 minutes because then you actually get into a deeper stage of sleep and something called sleep inertia makes you want to continue to sleep. It makes it very difficult to wake up. So I would say using napping appropriately, using caffeine appropriately, and then on the times when you're not working during these shifts is get the rest that you need on a consistent basis. There was an article that I read recently that Japan has now uh, created these uh, reclining chairs for their employees where yep. they can, you saw that, where you can kind of yep. recline completely flat like a bed and you can take your nap yep. by your desk. Yep. So what do you think about it's that concept? Cuckoo, if you ask me, <laughs> but I get it, right? Because they want them to be there and working and doing all these different things. And, you know, at some point in time, people have just got to say enough is enough. I've got to get my rest because here's the thing is if you do something like that, like what that study was looking at for too long of a period of time, you're not getting good quality sleep. You're going to have more errors. Your work product is going to go down. Safety becomes a concern. If you're operating machinery like a forklift or a truck, all these things are going to become, you know, liabilities to the business. I can't count the number of businesses where I've gone in and I've looked at a particular type of employee, like somebody who's in charge of heavy machinery and things like that. And we start counting up the errors and the safety concerns. If we just got them to sleep more, we would reduce those number of errors and the whole business becomes more problem. That's incredible. Um, now, this is another topic that I speak about with a friend, with friends of mine, and they are super shocked when I tell them because they had no idea as to the best timings to have sex. Yes. So <laughs> I, this is part of my book, The Power of When. I have an entire chapter on it. So people always ask, like, Michael, what's the best time to have sex? So it used to be when people would say, not tonight, I have a headache. Now people say, not tonight, I'm too damn tired, right, because of their busyness of their day. So let's get into it just a little bit. So when you look at the act of having sex, one of the most important things is your hormone profile. So there's five hormones that you want to be elevated, and there's one hormone that you want to be decreased. 
The elevated hormones that you want are adrenaline, cortisol, testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone. You want all those to be elevated. And melatonin, the sleep hormone, you want to be low. I'll give you one guess what your hormone profile looks like at 10.30 at night, which, by the way, when surveyed is when most people have sex. It's the opposite, right? Melatonin is high, and those other five are quite low. Number two is if your partner happens to be of the male persuasion, what do most men wake up with early in the morning? An erection, right? If that is not Mother Nature telling you when to use that thing, I don't know what is, okay? So trying morning sex, um, like jump out of bed, brush your teeth, throw in a little mouthwash, then get with your partner, it becomes very, very uh, important. And here's what's interesting is it's not just the performance on the physical side, but it's also the connection side of things. In my book, The Power of When, we created a matrix because guess what? Sometimes your partner has a different chronotype than you do. So what happens if you're an early bird and your partner's a night owl? Like, how does that whole thing work? So we actually did the research and we created a matrix where you can put your chronotype in on one side and your partner's chronotype in on the other side. We also have two other matrices, one for homosexual partners, one for lesbian partners because the hormone cycles are different. Okay. Um... And from the, the research that you've done in general and when people have tried to kind of... So do you recommend like not having like sex at night at all or is it just have it... No, no, no. It's So what I recommend is two different ways. One is having it earlier in the evening so you're not so exhausted or trying it in the morning. And so you heard it here on this podcast. We're going to give you the prescription to try sex at different times to see when is it going to be best for you and your partner. But I mean, we do, I mean, sex is obviously an, uh, an act that people do in the morning too, but because they're so um, like stressed, they have to get to work. It's always like a rushed feeling. Hence why at night as a wind down time, you're not as stressed, you know, you're going to bed. Hence why people end up having sex at that time, but without realizing that actually that isn't the best time. The best time is morning time. Right. But then, So what I tell people all the time is think about it on the weekends, right? Try to have sex in the morning on the weekends when you've had a chance to get a full night's rest. You can get up, like I said, brushing. You're not rushing to get to work. You're not hitting the alarm. You're not worried about the kids going to school, what have you. Make sure to lock your door if you've got kids. And, you know, try it in the morning time on Saturday and Sunday and see if that works for you and your partner. You might be surprised at how well it works. Okay, so listeners, please take that advice. That's right. Back to us and let us know if it actually helped your sex life better. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. We've discovered that it does. We've we've done a lot of the surveys on this and it's really pretty interesting, but people definitely find it. It's amazing. That it helps. Now, another question I want to ask you is in terms of sleep is really considered to be the fountain of youth, not just because of, you know, how much it, it really helps in terms of you know, brain capacity and and mood and all of that things, but also from a cellular level, right? It really plays an incredible role in cellular rejuvenation. So can you please explain to me the connection between sleep, aging, and longevity, and how does this help optimize sleep that can really just contribute to overall health? Sure. So so it's a big question. Um, When we look at longevity as a general rule or guideline, one of the things we know is that sleep seems people who sleep well in terms of quality and quantity have a tendency to live longer, all things considered, right? We, it's hard to say because genetics can play a, a big role in that. 
Um, but as a general guideline, people always say, is there such thing, Michael, as beauty sleep? Believe it or not, there is. Certain sleep stages appear to do different things for the body. So stages three and four, what we call deep sleep, that's your physical restoration. So that gets rid of the fine lines, the wrinkles. It's kind of like putting the car in the body shop and getting the dinks and the dents and the things kind of knocked out of it. REM sleep is your mental restoration. So this is where, from a cognitive perspective, something called the lymphatic system comes in and pulls out all of the negative proteins like beta amyloid and tau and be able to help you from a cognitive standpoint have better reaction time, faster thinking, better decision-making, and things like that. And so when you're looking at longevity, it's best to get full sleep cycles. An average sleep cycle is somewhere between 80 and 120 minutes, with the average being 90 minutes. And so the way I tell people all the time is you need to think of sleep in chunks or cycles. So if you can get between four and five cycles of sleep, you're going to be doing well. Now, when I see patients, what I do is I have them wear an aura ring or some other type of tracker, and then we track how big their cycle is. Some people, their cycle might be 75 minutes. Some people, their cycle might be 100 minutes. And so some people might have four cycles. Some people might have five cycles. And so I can dial it in by using that data along with their chronotype data to determine are you an early bird or a night owl or somebody in between. And I can usually pinpoint it pretty quickly. Now, do you think that these uh, devices that we use are accurate? So it's a great question. They're as accurate mm, as they can be so far. I think they are continuing to get more and more accurate as we see them. But let's be fair. If I brought you into my sleep lab and I put 27 electrodes on you, I'd have a much more clear picture than a ring that takes three or four pieces of data and algorithmically gets me there. Will it get better over time? We're already seeing that happening now. And so I would say probably in the next three to five years, we will definitely see um, some of these trackers become even more accurate than they are today. If we can only have the systems that you have in your lab in our home, it would make life so much easier for everyone. So much easier for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So now because I specialize in gut health and this is a topic that I really want to talk about with you and, you know, for you to really get your your expertise on this um, just from an angle off for our listeners too, is like mm-hmm. how does sleep really affect gut health? So it's a great question. It's not an area of expertise for me, but there are a few things that I happen to know about it. One of the things we know is that the gut has its own circadian rhythm, right? We know that the gut functions in a very particular way. It follows its own biological clock. And so we know that sleep affects the gut's circadian rhythm. So once again, consistency is always going to win out here. The more consistent your sleep schedule, the more consistent your overall circadian rhythm which means the more consistent your gut circadian rhythm is going to be. Also, another area of the gut that's kind of interesting, most people don't know this, but 80% of your melatonin is actually made in your gut, along with most of your neurotransmitters are actually made in your gut, and then they become distributed elsewhere. So you really want to pay attention to things like your microbiome. You really want to know and understand how gut health is important for all areas of health. I would argue that people who are not paying attention to what they're eating and their gut health are going to be in for a miserable, miserable ride throughout their entire healthy existence because gut has so much to do with just about everything that's going on. 
Yes, that's 100% true. And you heard it from the doctor yourself. So There you go. <laughs> there you go. So, you know, I, I speak about this all the time and, uh, with the people that I work with. And, you know, it's something that I promote heavily, not just from a perspective that uh, sleep is, is incredible for rejuvenation, anti-aging, but also that, you know, if we're not getting enough sleep, fat sticks on to your body. It's so much harder oh, yes. to lose weight, you know, and there are people who say that I've been doing all the right things and I'm getting on that scale and I'm not losing the weight. Uh, there's the one thing that you're not doing is you're not sleeping. You're not sleeping enough. Yep, absolutely. So I wrote a book. My second book was called The Sleep Doctor's Diet, Lose Weight Through Better Sleep. And it really looks at, the, at how sleep affects the metabolic process. There's four things that people need to understand. So number one, when you're sleep deprived, remember that's a personal definition for you. When you are sleep deprived, four things happen. Number one is your appetite um, increases. Okay. Now, why is that? Because your brain is wondering, why are you awake? So it wants you to gain more resources and get more food. The second thing that happens is your metabolism slows down. Why is that? Same reason. You're awake. It doesn't want to use up all the fuel that's in the tank. Third thing that happens is your hormones get out of whack. Two hormones in particular. One is called leptin, which makes you feel full. That gets lower. The other is called ghrelin, which increases hunger, which, by the way, is different than appetite. That increases by almost 20%. So think about it. Your appetite is high. Your hunger is high. Your feelings of full are low, and your metabolism is low. If that is not a recipe for, for gaining weight, I don't know what is. But wait, there's one more thing that happens that makes it all worse, which is the more sleep-deprived you become, the more you crave high-fat, high-caloric foods. The reason for this is when you're awake, it increases something called cortisol in your brain. And your brain doesn't like cortisol for long periods of time. The easiest way to reduce cortisol is eat a Snickers bar, right? Have a bunch of sugar or high-fat that immediately causes serotonin to quell that cortisol. And again, it's not good for the love angels. You know, there's so many cultures out there that just don't understand this concept at all. They really believe in overworking their people. And they think yeah. just in order to maximize um, um, the way that they are. Yeah, produ no, in order to maximize what I meant, in order to maximize uh, getting as much as they can in terms of growing their business, they think that they need to overwork their people, but they don't realize that actually it's that the worst is, idea you yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's it, detrimental for your business. It's detrimental for, uh, it's a high turnover in, in your staff uh, retention oh, yeah. rate. People don't want to stay in organizations that overwork you like that. You're not just a number. And I talk about this all the time because I do a lot of workshops and I promote a lot of these things, not just from the senior level, but also within employees. Like I, I really speak about it from that level because if you really want to excel and you make your business profitable, you need to make sure that your your employees are getting the number one most important aspect to make your business thrive is you need to give them a break and you need to let them sleep. I think those are um, two very fundamental um, uh, kind of like part of a rule book and handbook for any organizations um, in order to become successful. Now, am I right with that? You are 100% correct with that. Okay. I couldn't agree with you more, actually. Okay. Um, now, we did touch on the point of naps a lot and sleep deprivation earlier, too. Yes. So now I'm going to ask you the question on this 
particular topic called Napa Latte. Now, yes, now, what are favorites. what are the potential benefits and consideration of incorporating a Napa Latte approach in people's daily routine for managing energy sure. levels and productivity? Now, before you answer that, like I'm not a coffee drinker, for example, but there are a lot of people who really love drinking coffee. Like, for example, in this part of the world, you know, coffee is massive. It's part of their culture. It's what right. they do to socialize. It's what they do to, right. you know, to start their day with. So this concept of Napalade is not really, like, widely known. A lot of people don't even talk about it, at least in this part of the world. So I'd love for you to really explain this concept and how does this really help people who want to have a lot more productivity? Sure. So I came up with the concept a little while ago, but it's based on real science. So when a cell eats a piece of glucose, something comes out the back end. One of those things is called adenosine. Adenosine works its way through your system and accumulates in a very specific area of your brain. As adenosine accumulates, you get sleepier and sleepier and sleepier. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the molecular structure of adenosine and the molecular structure of caffeine, they're off by one molecule, which is kind of amazing when you think about it, like the thing that makes you sleepy and the thing that keeps you awake are only off by one molecule. But what's interesting here is if you drink a cup of coffee, what I tell people to do is get a cup of six ounce drip black coffee, no cream, no sugar, throw three ice cubes in it, drink it really quickly, and then close your eyes immediately. Here's what happens is as you fall asleep, your uh, brain burns through the adenosine the caffeine is waiting in the wings, and since it's so close in molecular structure, it fits perfectly into that receptor site. And when you wake up, not only are you more rested, but now you've got energy and you can go, go, go. Now, what I tell people all the time is you need to be careful. You can't do a Napa latte every day, right? That's not how it works. But what you can do is use it sparingly when you need it for before a presentation or you're on an airline flight or something along those lines, and it can be quite helpful. For folks who tell me, well, look, caffeine is part of our culture. We, we drink it all the time. To be fair, there's this thing called decaffeinated coffee, okay? I understand it doesn't taste the same. I understand all that. But at the end of the day, if you're really interested in working on your sleep, having a decaffeinated version of your, of your caffeinated beverage of choice can be actually very beneficial. For some people, I actually ask them to try something called matcha. So matcha is a great substitute. It's still has a little bit of caffeine, but it's significantly lower in its caffeine content. And it's still something that people can enjoy uh, culturally with their friends and their family. I love matcha. I talk about matcha all the time. It's incredible. So are you a coffee drinker yourself or you're a matcha drinker mainly? I'm more of a coffee drinker than I'm a matcha drinker. And what I've figured out over the course of time is I like to have one cup of coffee and I usually have it just before I work out. Um, because it helps me keep my energy up while I'm working out. Okay, and can you just run through quickly your routine on um, how you, how you run your day in terms of like your coffee schedules? Do you just drink one in the morning? Do you drink one in the afternoon as well? So here's what I do: is I wake up somewhere between five forty-five and six o'clock, um, and I first thing I do is my one of my dogs is a little bit older and he requires medication. So I get his medication ready and I give him that. And it takes 10 minutes for it to kick in before I can give him his food. So then I'm making him and uh, my other dog their food. Then I get dressed um, and then I take them out for a walk. So I get a little bit of sunshine every single morning, about 15 minutes of sunlight. 
I come back and then I sit down on the floor and I play with my dogs for a good five minutes every single day. I mean, who doesn't like unconditional love in the morning time, right? It's the best feeling ever. Um, then I um, am either driving my daughter to work or heading over to the gym and I will have a cup of coffee on the way over to the gym. Um, then I work out. Uh, then I have a sauna after I work out, come home and start my day. And oftentimes I won't have any more caffeine throughout the daytime. Every once in a while, if I am feeling a little down or I didn't get a good night's sleep the night before, because every once in a while the sleep doctor does not sleep perfectly, um, I might have a second cup of coffee towards the noon to one o'clock range, but I almost never have caffeine after 1 p.m. because it definitely has an effect on me and my ability to sleep at night. Right. Um, now, sleep disorders. We've touched a lot on that on that particular topic, but now from a standpoint of the dynamics of being in a relationship, so it could be just in a partnership or being married. Now, I ask this question because I deal with a lot of people who have these types of issues where one is a different chronotype, like you mentioned earlier, and the other one's another chronotype. Right. So this can cause a bit of, um, you know, t- some tension in, in, uh, in the oh, dynamics yeah. of a, a relationship, even just family dynamics, right? So what is right. your advice for individuals um, and couples really navigating the challenges of, of being together um, while they have these, like, very, very different, like, sleeping patterns? So there's a couple of different ways that you can go about doing it. One of my favorite, and this is going to sound a little weird, but just bear with me, is sometimes I have couples sleeping separately for four nights a week and then sleeping together for three nights a week. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, maybe even Wednesday, they sleep separately so they can get their own schedules. Some people like temperatures different. Some people like different beds. But then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they sleep together. They have time for intimacy. They have time for being together. And a lot of times this schedule works out really, really well. Now, let's say that you're living in a situation where there isn't a separate place for you to sleep. I want to be very, very clear. People think this all the time, and it's simply not true. The strength of your relationship has nothing to do with whether or not you sleep in the same bed together or you go to bed at the same time. Lots of people say, well, I want to go to bed with my partner and because I feel better about doing it that way. It has nothing to do with the strength of your relationship. People are different. And just because you love somebody and they're a great life partner doesn't mean they have the same chronotype as you. Doesn't mean that it's always going to work out. So give your partner and yourself a break. If you're a night owl and they're an early bird, let them go to bed earlier if that's what works better for them. It's not going to mean anything about your relationship. Just make sure that you get your time to be together, whether that's for intimacy or casual conversation or whatever, earlier in the evening when you're both awake, alert, and ready to do that. Do you believe in having separate duvets when you're sleeping in the same bed? I do. Me too. I couldn't sleep without my own duvet. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have one couple where one person sleeps in a sleeping bag and the other person has their own duvet because one person likes to be, you know, squunched up and and swaddled while the other person likes to have lots of room to move, have their feet out from under, have a very thin coverlet. So you, you really have to think through what your body needs. Also for women, if they're going through menopause, then they might get hot flashes, things of that nature. And so they might need a completely different set of sheets things things like that. And so I'm never one of these people that says you got to always do X, Y, or Z. You 
you got to be flexible. You have to listen to your partner, listen to their needs, and then figure out what's best for the both of you. Okay.、Um, now this is another like very interesting topic. I want to I want to give you、uh, only because. In many parts of the world, people are always traveling. We touched point on this a bit earlier, but now I'm going to give you a scenario as if it was me who was going through the situation. Okay, so let's pretend、okay. for a moment that I'm an individual who is constantly traveling. So I'm、okay. either one of a cabin crew with crazy time zones, or my work is I'm a consultant who has to be in different time zones every single day, almost, and back the same day too. Right,、yeah. um, jet lag is real. I don't eat right. I'm not sleeping right, and I'm too tired to even go and work out. So, what are some simple things or strategies that you would basically, you know, tell someone that is going through this, which is me, for example, or in this situation <laughs> with this crazy, crazy travel schedule? And how do you, how are you able to like manage your circadian rhythms and everything else to like have this peak of optimal health still? So I use an app. It's called Time Shifter.、Um, I've never heard of that. It's available in the App Store.、Um, and full disclosure, I'm both an investor and help develop the app itself. But what we do is we use caffeine, melatonin, light, and napping in a very particular order, depending upon your direction of travel, depending upon your chronotype, and we can really dial in exactly when you should go to bed and when you should wake up, wherever, whatever time zone you're in. In fact, we have a program where two days before you leave for your travel, we can make it so that you land on time in whatever time zone you're in. That's amazing. So, but I mean, managing other stuff though, like、uh, diet and exercise. It's all in the app. It's unbelievable. We teach you when to eat. We teach you when to drink. We teach you when to sleep.、Um, the big thing to remember is, is when you're traveling and you're moving through time zones. You really want to be careful. You want to avoid alcohol almost at all costs because that really messes with your circadian rhythm. You do want to exercise. A lot of people say, "Well, I'm traveling. There's the my equipment isn't there." Almost every hotel in the universe has a gym.、Um, go there and have a special hotel workout. And if you don't want, if you didn't bring your gym clothes, you can actually do body weight exercises in your room: push-ups, sit-ups. Bridges, whatever it is you want to do, but you can still get some form of movement. I think it's very, very important. And another big tip that a lot of people don't know is make sure to get some good sleep the night before you travel. So a lot of people don't know this, but the night before you travel is nine times out of ten the worst night of sleep you're going to have. So I tell people all the time: don't skimp on sleep. Don't be packing until one o'clock in the morning. Right, get that stuff done ahead of time because it's going to be much more helpful for you. And do, is there a recommended room temperature that you would recommend for people when they go to sleep? Absolutely, colder is better. Somewhere between sixty-eight and seventy-two degrees is really kind of where you want to be. Now, if you're living in an area that's a hundred and ten, and with the heat wave that's been going on lately,、um, lots of people are living in areas you might not be able to get to a room that's sixty-eight to seventy-two degrees. You want it to be about twenty to twenty-five degrees off the daily high for sure. Okay, that's a good one.、Um, now I like to—I mean, I like to sleep in a very cold room, and I really noticed that there, there are nights that I sleep that I don't have an eye mask on, and there are nights that I sleep and I have it on, and I sleep so much better with it on. Even if、Me、I、too. have blackout blinders, 
and yep. uh, I still sleep better. Is there like an explanation to that? So darker is better because what happens is in total darkness, your brain produces more melatonin. Right. So for example, one of the things that like, for example, my wife falls asleep with the television on every single night. And that's not really all that great because there's light in the room, there's sound in the room. I mean, we've been married for 23 years, so I've kind of gotten used to it. But for me, like especially when I travel and especially when I travel on an airplane, I always bring an eye mask because I need to have almost complete darkness to allow my body to kind of adapt and do that, even if there's blackout shades. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't like blackout shades. It's hard for me to wake up in a room with blackout yeah. shades, but it's not hard for me to wake up when I have an eye mask. I totally agree. So you, do you recommend that people just use eye masks when they sleep? Like everyone should use Primarily, it? Primarily, yes. I love eye masks. I wear them all the time. My wife makes fun of me, but I love it. No, I love it. I have one that actually has like a, a collagen Kind of, but I mean, it's it's a beauty thing, you know. At the end of the day, <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. Also, um, now this topic we we touched point a bit earlier too, but I'm gonna bring up bring it up a bit more now, just from a stage of REM sleep, right? So now during sure. REM sleep or so REM sleep, and despite you know having increased brain activity, the body does enter a state of muscle paralysis, known as REM atonia. Correct. Yes. Okay, so this temporary loss of muscle um, a tone like uh, prevents us from acting out our dreams because like people wonder why like you know like what happens when like when you're sleepwalking and various things like why are we not going through the state where we're thinking about things and we're not like a- acting it out? It's because of this very reason, right? And um, now, so now I want to ask you just a little bit about your your. Um, Your theory on dreams, okay? So sure. dreams have captivated humans for centuries. Now, I'm someone that does not yeah. dream uh, often, and there's people that I know who dream all the time, and I even have clients who have nightmares often, like crazy amount right. of nightmares. And they right. wake up in anxiety, they're stressed out, they can't go back to sleep. So from your end, like, uh, what are some prevailing theories about like the purpose and meaning of dreams? And how does this really contribute to our understanding of sleep? So this is a great question. There's not a tremendous amount of data out there on dreams because dream interpretation is really not a science. It's really more uh, people trying to understand what's going on. You are the best person to understand your own dreams. Now, there is something called a dream therapist. This is very different than a dream interpreter. And to be to tell you the truth, I'm glad you brought this up. I'm going to start taking courses in how to become a dream therapist, Amazing. specifically for my patients with nightmares. So nightmares are usually situations where people wake up and it's usually a very distressing dream. And what we know about dreams is it's where we process emotion. It's where we move information from our short-term memory to our long-term memory. But this emotional processing stops when we wake up from the nightmare. And so what a dream therapist will do, and these are people who've been trained for years, so this is going to take me a while to do, is what they do is they bring people into a therapeutic environment, create a safe space, and then ask them to really sit back with their eyes closed and recall everything they can about the dream in as much detail as they can. And then they actually have them move through the dream and they say, push play, right? Because it's been stuck on pause, if you will. And then ask them to say, what's going to happen next in the dream? And what happens next? And what happens next? And get them to feel 
those emotions, even though they're awake, their eyes are closed, again, the room is quite dark, but it gets them to get through that emotional processing aspect of it, and then they find that it actually can work out quite well. There's a great um, dream researcher and nightmare therapist, his name is Dr. Barry Krakow at the University of uh, New Mexico, and he has a, a theory which I've used and works quite well, where you write down all of the dream, but you change the ending so that you are no longer the person who's getting stabbed or killed or what have you that's happening in the dream, but you're the victor. You're the person who does the killing or you're the one who gets away or what have you. And then you read the new ending five or 10 times before you go to sleep. And over the course of seven to 21 days, you actually change what happens in the dream. That's kind of amazing. Cool. I've never heard of that. Do you, are you a dreamer? Do you dream a lot? I do dream. Um, it depends. If I've had alcohol, then I don't dream as much or at all. Um, some people dream every single night. Believe it or not, everybody dreams, just not everybody remembers yes. their dreams. And why sometimes as well, like I remember certain parts of my dreams, but other night days I just don't remember anything at all? So It depends on when you wake up and where in the dream sequence you wake up. That's usually what determines if you remember it. Yeah, because not. sometimes so some they're, so, they're so vivid and sometimes they're like, I don't remember anything. Yep. It all depends upon your wake up and where you are in that dream part of the cycle. Okay, that's interesting. Now, going back to quality of sleep and how much we get off it, and when you mentioned as well that there are nights that you don't get enough and there are nights that you get really great sleep, this particular yep. person, his name is Brian Johnson, he is currently holds the record for being the world's most measured man. Right. And he, what? he the world's most measured man. So okay. he has um, so he's based in the U.S. And basically what he has done is he's a serial entrepreneur and he has. Oh, I know this guy. Yeah, he's trying to become younger. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, um, this part I found extremely fascinating from uh, from from the sleep uh, cycle and perspective is because he has. Um, apparently successfully achieved a sleep score of a hundred percent for three months in a row. Right now I wanted to get your opinion on that. And you're thinking like, is that even achievable for most people? So I would say, no, it's probably not achievable for most people. Um, I believe he's in a very unique situation. Number one, he has almost no money worries. Um, he is a serial entrepreneur who is quite wealthy. Number two, he's taking every supplement in the universe, um, and that's very expensive to do. So he may have started to at least crack the code on it. But remember, the accuracy of the trackers themselves isn't necessarily as accurate as we would want them to be. Now, if you told me that he was having 27 electrodes put on him and he was having a sleep study every night and he got perfect sleep every night from that, that would be impressive. Um, but I'm not aware of a whole lot of people who can do that. But... To his credit, and I want to be—I want to give him credit where credit is due. He's definitely trying to, at least he understands how important sleep is, yes. longevity process, and he respects the idea that sleep is important. So, if he is getting these hundred percent scores, good for him. I think it's awesome. You know, like I way to go, and I'd love to learn more about his routines and what he's doing to do that. When I work with people, they have lots of constraints, whether it's time constraints, work constraints, family constraints, financial constraints, and those all weigh heavy on people's minds. And that's usually what affects their sleep the most. Yeah. So he's created a blueprint protocol that basically gives people access to how much supplements they need to take, 
Uh, I watched several of his videos where he created the sleeping routine, the, the precise sleeping routine that he does every single night. And I believe like, you know, it's great sometimes, but I think it's not really achievable a lot of the times for a lot of people right. also because the, like you said, lifestyle is completely different and it just right. doesn't make it as easy as how he does it because he's just has an opportunity to be able to just wake up and go to sleep whenever he wants to. But from an aspect yeah. of trying to show from the science perspective, uh, from data that, you know, sleep is super important and that it's achievable to get really good nights of sleep. If you're following a particular protocol, it may not be every night, but if you're doing it at least 80% of your life, you know, right. you can still live optimally. You can still activate anti-aging and also. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I want to be clear. Nobody's out there except for maybe this guy has perfect sleep. Okay. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. Right. Because there's trade-offs across the board. If you want to stay up a little bit later because you want to spend time with a loved one or you're drinking champagne because it's a, it's a celebration or you have a really hard workout or what have you. You know, nobody out there except for this fellow is probably monitoring themselves as closely as he is and therefore have the data. But like if you think about it, this is kind of what professional athletes do. If you look at LeBron James, guess what? He has a very regimented sleep schedule, especially during the season, even different when he's off season. So when you look at any professional athlete group, their entire universe is based on their body. Guess what? They're going to have some very specific rules and regulations. And by the way, Ryan's an N of one. He's the only one doing this. His body could be very different than yours and very different than mine. And so what works for him, there might be some hints that work for other people. But as a general guideline, it probably doesn't work for everybody. True. So we spoke about supplements and the amount of supplements Brian takes is about 100 a day. Now, oh <laughs> now, uh, are you a believer in supplements? Well, here's what I'm a believer in is if you have a deficit, then it, the deficit needs to be fixed. So when people come to me and they say, Michael, you know, should I take ashwagandha? Should I take valerian? Should I take all this stuff? The first thing I say is talk to your doctor and get some blood work done. You know, nobody out there has a deficiency in valerian root. Nobody has a deficiency in ashwagandha, but they might have a deficiency in magnesium vitamin D, iron, or melatonin. And those are the four things that I have people check first. Then we fix the deficiency first. Then we just see how your body is operating when it's at the right levels. Then we can decide if ashwagandha makes sense or valerian or something along those lines. But my theory is let's figure out what's going on in your body first. Let's replace the things that need to be replaced. And then let's see what's going on. Okay. Uh so I'd like to know from you in general when it comes to melatonin. Melatonin as a supplement is overused. Most people it take is, it. So I want you to just talk a little bit about melatonin as a supplement and why I know you don't believe in taking melatonin supplements. So I'd That's like correct. to know as to why you don't believe in taking them and what are alternatives that people can do to, I know we touched upon it earlier a little bit, but now from a supplement perspective, because I know a lot of people yep. who take it, why don't you believe in it? And what are better ways to, to gain melatonin uh, if they wanted to take it from a supplement form? Sure. So first of all, remember melatonin is a hormone. Okay. And so you wouldn't go down to the local drugstore and buy testosterone or estrogen, right? Because it could do all kinds of crazy things. But here in the United States, it's not regulated. Um, and 
95% of the time, it's sold in an over-dosage format. The correct dose, at least from Wortman's lab at MIT, shows that it should be somewhere between a half and one and a half milligrams. So number one, most people are taking very large dosages, three, five, even 10 milligrams of melatonin, which is just completely inappropriate. So that's number one. Number two is most people have plenty of melatonin already on board. There are very simple saliva tests that you can take. You can buy them on the internet and figure out if you have a melatonin deficiency. If you don't have a melatonin deficiency, just by regulating your sleep schedule, your melatonin will go right back into line and you will be fine. Now, to be fair, there are some times when melatonin could be valuable. Jet lag is one. Shift work is another. And then for people as they get older and their melatonin begins to drop, that's when I think melatonin can be valuable for some people. Also, we've seen melatonin can be useful in certain populations. For example, the autistic population. We know that melatonin at higher dosages, 5, 7, even 9 milligrams, can be very helpful in those kids um, and those young adults. And so sometimes we see it used there. But people using melatonin as a sleeping pill, there's very little data to support it. And it's really not the best idea. Okay. And if those are promoting the, the herb side of it, like ashwagandha, rhodiola, valerian root, mm-hmm. uh, various others. But, you know, when you're looking at it from a perspective of these herbs, it isn't just focused on uh, getting you to fall asleep. It's really uh, reacting in a way that it helps your body uh, recover from stress better, right? So it's putting mm-hmm. uh, your body in a state of, uh, instead of like parasympathetic, sympathetic states, it, it lowers your, it lowers the level of the amount of stress you have so that you're able to calm yourself and go to sleep. It's the purpose of a lot of these herbs. Now, do you believe right. that herbs are a better alternative to melatonin supplements? Well, it depends, and it depends on the situation. Because let's be fair, if you know how to meditate, you can do all of that without any herbs, True. right? Um, there's a new device out called an Apollo. This is a wrist-worn device that actually does a very mild vibration and actually increases parasympathetic tone, helps decrease sympathetic tone, and it's all based on human touch. So if you just give somebody a hug, guess what? You start to calm down and you start to feel a whole lot better. So what I try to tell people all the time is you don't have to look for something outside of your body in order to make your body feel good, unless you've got a deficiency. And in that case, it might make sense. Now, I definitely think people should take magnesium. I think that's most people are deficient in magnesium. I think most people are deficient in vitamin D. So those are two supplements that I recommend on a very regular basis that I think can be very powerful and very helpful for people. Now, do I think that there are people out there who are super stressed out, who can't exercise, who don't know how to meditate, and could ashwagandha be helpful for them? Of course I do, right? But at the end of the day, I don't think anybody has to take it, right? Again, I don't think anybody has a deficiency in valerian root in their body or ashwagandha in their body. And so I think there are better natural ways where you don't have to be so dependent on a pill or something. Okay. Now, uh, blue light blockers because of blue light. It's an important topic and it's spoken about all the time. Dave Asprey is big on this. He talks about it all the time too. Do you believe in blue light blockers? Do you believe that we need to be wearing it at daytime? We need to wear it at nighttime. There's a certain period that we need to utilize them and all of that stuff. Here's what I'll tell you is it really depends upon you and your amount of light exposure. 
So what the data would suggest is the amount of blue light that you get during the day has a lot to do with the rods and the cones in your eye and how they react to blue light at night. So for most people who spend time outside during the daytime, they don't really require to have blue light blocking glasses on um, during the daytime because their eyes have gotten adjusted and used to it. Now, if you have sensitive eyes, if you have certain eye disorders, then yes, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, another example is let's say you're a shift worker and you're staring at a computer screen all night long. Yeah, it's probably a good idea to have blue light blocking glasses. Now, Dave's glasses, here's what I'll tell you about the glasses that Dave produces because I have some of them. If I want to fall asleep on an airplane, his true dark glasses work like magic. Yeah, I need to get those okay? glasses. I, I mean, they are incredible. But they're so, they block 100% of the blue light. If I stand up and walk around, I bang into things, okay? And so there's a practicality to that as well. And so I find that his glasses are very useful in certain situations. As a general guideline, there are three things that you want to look for in blue light blocking glasses. You want to look for um, the blue the, that it, uh, actually uh, filters out the 460 to 480 nanometer wavelength of light, which is blue light. You want to make sure that it lowers the brightness of the light, which means the lens is going to have to be colored. If you see blue light blocking glasses that are clear, they don't work. And then you also want to make sure that the angle of the light is important. So you want it to really cover the entire orbit of your eye um, because otherwise light's going to come in from here and it's not going to do you. Gosh, we got so much important information out of you today. I'm so happy. Like this is just... Like this entire podcast episode is like people can completely transform the sleep just from this episode alone. That's the goal. I wanted to do that. I mean, I love what you're doing. I think it's very important. I think this whole idea of thinking about be that life is really an important aspect Thank to you. who we all should be and become. So Mary, it's been my absolute pleasure to be on here with you tonight. And I certainly enjoy your company and I think your listeners are going to enjoy it as well. Thank you. Now, before we end, I like to do a little rapid questions in 60 seconds kind of thing. And, uh, you know, just to get to live and know you a little bit more. <laughs> sure. Okay, so my first question is, uh, what is one societal norm or expectation that you find limiting or outdated? A societal norm? Oh, that's a good, interesting question. A societal norm that I find limiting or outdated? Hmm. I don't know. That's a great question. I don't, you know, to be fair, I'm so open and accepting of most things that I think that's a, there's a lot of old ways of thinking that I just don't think are really very useful anymore. Which one? Um, what I are think, those? What are those? Well, Maybe I think one. racism could it'd be great if racism went away. Um, I think that is a very old societal way of thinking. I think all people should be able to express themselves from every culture, from every ethnic background. So I would say that racism would be one that I, I certainly don't agree with. Okay, that's a good one. What brings you the most joy and fulfillment in your life? Oh, that's easy. Spending time with people that I care about. Um, spending time with my dogs, my wife, my children, friends, making new friends. Those are all things that give me tremendous amount of joy community i guess is probably the thing that is the most important is having that community how do you define happiness you know i think happiness is different for everyone but i would say one of the biggest things is is that if you figure out what enough is for you you will be happy 
What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, wow. That's a hard one. Um, best piece of advice I've ever received. You know, I've, seen, I've received so many. Um, my friend Joe Polish, who we mentioned earlier, he said something to me once that really stuck with me during a really, really hard time in my life when I was really struggling. He turned to me and he said, Michael, if you can write a check, you don't have a problem. And what he meant by that was, you know, if you've got cancer, you can't buy your way out of something like that. But if you've got a big financial thing that's going on or it's an obstacle, but it's not necessarily a problem. The other one is a quote um, that I think was from, I think it was Nelson Mandela who said, um, we don't uh, we don't lose, we either win or learn. Yeah, I like I that one. That, I think that one has been one that I've thought about quite often. And then I also like the serenity prayer. You know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I think that's another one that's been really important in my life. That's a favorite one for me too. What is one book, movie, or work of art that has profoundly influenced your perspective on life? Oh, wow. I, you know, I read a lot. I'm reading a really fascinating book right now. Um, this is going to sound strange, but it's called The Psychology of Money. And it is a really interesting book because money and sleep are very similar. They're currencies, right? And you know, I feel like the currency of health is sleep. And uh, obviously, currency financially is important as well. And we make a lot of assumptions and we do a lot of things. So that book, The Psychology of Money, has been one that I think has been really good. Also, I've been reading uh, books by um, a, a gentleman who uh, developed a company called Executive Coach. His name is Dan Sullivan. And he writes some really big, uh, really interesting books. The one I've actually got that I've been working with the most, this, it's, I actually happen to have it right here. Um, it's called Geometry for Staying Cool and Calm. <laughs> and he talks about how to keep a cool head in crazy situations. I think I'm going to use that. I've never used that line before. The currency of, of health is sleep. That's a really good one. Thanks. Uh, if you could change one thing about the education system, what would it be and why? That's easy. I would teach people how to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, nobody, nobody ever, you know, when you even go to health class, There might be a couple of pages. There's not even a chapter in the health book on sleep. And so I would really love to revamp the education system so that kids learn how to sleep early on. Because if you have that skill set, it's going gonna, it's gonna to save you in the long run, for sure. I think there's a lot of things when it comes to the education system that we need to fix. You need to teach yes, people how to, you need to teach children about nutrition, which isn't yes. like... And it's not even like an important topic. You need to teach people how to sleep. Um, you need to also teach people or students how to like well, one of my one of my good friends actually his name is Spencer Lodge. He said uh, as well was you know one of the things that they don't teach you at university is how to get a job after. So that's another nice. that's another thing that they don't teach you. So they just teach you the Absolutely. skills, but they don't teach you life skills. You know? Yeah, it would be great if there was a life skills course that everybody had to take. Right? Maybe we should create one together, Michael. <laughs> I know, we should. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that has been so enjoyable. And I have taken Thank away you. so much information from that that I could totally uh, make my, my work better when I work with people. So thank you so much again, uh, Dr. Michael Bruce. And uh, I look you. forward to 
many more uh, sessions with you in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. And if folks want to learn more about me, you can check out chronoquiz.com or swing on over to my website, which is thesleepdoctor.com. Is there anything that you are doing now in, in, um, in the next couple of months that is uh, maybe a new book or you're speaking at another convention or what, like what's in the pipeline over the next few months for, for you? <laughs> well, you know, to be honest with you, I've slowed things down a little bit. Um, I'm, it's the summertime now. And so my goal is to spend a little bit more time with my family, not have so many things going on. So right now I don't have a whole lot on the front burner or even the back burner. It's just really more focusing on me, my health and spending time with my family. I think people can totally learn from you and like use you as an inspiration to live their best life. Thank you. Thanks. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you. So I got a quick question for you. Do you know anything about the Megaverse? Well, I am in partnership and in collaboration with the team at the Megaverse who are creating for me a unique wellness world, and I'm so excited to share with you all. I firmly believe that Web 2 is a thing of the past, and Web 3 is the future. To know more about them, check out megaverse.xyz.